Welcome to the Radical Christian Life with Doug and Paula. We're so excited as we discuss what it looks like to live the radical Christian life, following Jesus no matter the call, no matter the cost. Yeah, so let's get to it. Well, welcome back to the RCL. You have joined us for the last in our series of Prophecy and End Times. Really, it has to end? It does. Okay. I'm sorry. We can't go on forever. It's the end times after all, right? So there we go. And it's the end time for this. So anyway, we come now to the seventh feast. Oh, that's so exciting. The seventh feast, the seventh of the last feast. Yes. And we're going to do a quick overview of the first six. Yes. So these come out of Leviticus uh, 23. And if you remember, these are called the appointed days and the Hebrew word there. It actually has the idea of... uh, Feast with a purpose. I mean, these are appointed days with a purpose. Mm. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Feast with a purpose. Yeah. There's three in the <laughs> spring. Those are the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits, and that re- represents the gospel. Christ died for our sins and was raised on the first third day. And uh, uh, Passover, Christ died, Unleavened Bread, that he removed our sins, took away sin. That's what leavened bread represents. And then he was resurrected, the first fruit of the resurrection. And so that, and the fourth feast comes 50 days later, Pentecost, and something literal happened on that day. The Holy Spirit came, and then there's a gap. There's no feasts. I just had to do that. Thank you. Four, fifth, and six (laughs) months, there's no feast. But, uh, and that's significant. The the first three feasts are in the first month, holy uh, number one, beginning, Fourth feast is in the third month, which is a holy number, of course, three. And then no feast, fourth, fifth, and sixth months, because it's the time of the Gentiles. It's the gap that's going on. And right, that's what we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And then the last three feasts are in the fall. In the seventh month, that's significant. Seven is completion. So the fifth feast on the first day of the seventh month is trumpets. And that's what we're waiting for, the trumpets, the rapture, mm-hmm. the trumpets to blow and Christ to, for us to be raised up, meet Christ in the air, First mm. uh, Thessalonians 4. And then the fifth fee, sixth feast is atonement, and that's a day of mourning, where Israel is to humble themselves. And the prophetic significance, the tribulation is going to come, Israel is going to be humbled, the nations that are opposed against Israel are going to be humbled during the great tribulation. And then we come to the seventh feast now. Mm, the feast Ta-ta-ta. of tabernacle, Yay. or boots, yeah. as, as it's called in Hebrew. Well, it's called in Hebrew, yeah. Sukkot. Yeah, Sukkot, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. And sometimes English is boots. Yeah, yeah, sometimes you see it translated in some Bibles as the Feast of Tabernacles, and some as the Feast of Booths. We're going to use tabernacles here mostly. So Great. Yeah. So you're not going to make me pronounce the Hebrew word multiple yeah. times. Sukkot. Great. Yeah. Well, it is the seventh month. It is the seventh feast, and it is seven days long. Yeah. Wow. Seven, 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 yes. And actually, I I don't have this written down. I read this, and I've never really, I didn't significantly, but I guess all the feasts, I mean, during this feast, there's a lot of sacrifices. It's a real party time, a lot of sacrifices, and somebody's, I think it's, is it 490? I don't know. So don't. Somebody wants to look this up and send me the information. I <laughs> but I guess the feasts are divisible by seven. I mean, the sacrifices are divisible by seven. So seven is really an important number in this feast. So wow. Okay. You threw me off with all those completion numbers. Completion and completion. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Well, all males are required to go to Jerusalem. Three times a year for three feasts, Israel, all males are required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. 
Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Mm, and this was one of those. Yes. Doesn't mean women can't go. It just <laughs> means the males or the head of the house are required to go. Yeah, yeah. A hardcore feminist just loses their mind on these paths. Like, <laughs> why are only men called to go? Well, you could go if you wanted yeah, to. It doesn't say great. no woman is allowed <laughs> in the city, but men were required to go. Great. And no work is done on the first day. Then people live in temporary shelters and then no work on the eighth day. So you can work between that, yes, yeah. <laughs> but not on the first and not on the eighth. And the significance of these booths, and they do this to this day. In fact, if you go to New York City during the Feast of Tabernacles, if you go in the Jewish quarters, you'll see literally on balconies, these Yeah, they build these, yeah, yeah, it's great, like, like cabins plywood and, plywood, and tents yeah. and, and stuff. It's really cool. We watched a documentary on that yeah, not yeah. too long so, ago. And it's to celebrate when they were wandering, they were in their temporary shelters waiting to go into the promised land and how God provided for them, and also in the anticipation of uh, God's protection. And protection and provision are the two ideas that they're celebrating during mm. this and how I God think the took care of them. the key word there, and I love that, is celebration. Yeah. The last feast, the sixth feast, yeah. was lamenting, yes. mourning, yeah. um, and this one is celebratory. Yeah, and it's so funny because it, it's only four days in between because the 10th day of the seventh month is atonement, and then the, the 15th day of the seventh month is when tabernacle started. Mm. So basically you only have four days in between. So they go from mourning and humbling themselves mm. Into this celebration, and to this day, they say it's like Christmas. I'm not, we're not Jewish, so we haven't never celebrated. I was watching documentaries, and they were all talking how the kids love this, and they love the kids love to go stay in the shelters, and all that. Parents <laughs> were complaining, going, "Yeah, it's kind of a drag." But you know, it's a real party time because yeah. Israel was really celebrating. Yeah, well, more than just it being um, celebratory, it has deep, deep, deep prophetic significance. Yeah, it's it? one of the feasts, and all of them so far have had a literal. Well, the first four have literal fulfillment. Mm. We see clearly how scripture points to literal fulfillment of the fifth feast. We said trumpets and the rapture, and then the sixth feast, atonement and the tribulation period. And now we come to the seventh, and there is prophetic significance. And it, But it yeah. doesn't start just a future. It already started back when Christ's first coming, the mm. spiritual significance of it. Yeah. John 1, 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there actually for dwelt is tabernacled. Yeah. He tabernacled yeah. among us. Yeah, if you look at the Hebrew, if you look at the Hebrew New Testament, or if you look at the Septuagint Old Testament, which is the Greek Old Testament, so I'm, it's the same word that's used for tabernacle in the Old Testament is used for this verb here in the New I Testament. I love that because yeah. it's. I mean, what is it? It's Jesus is the point of the tabernacles, yeah. isn't he? He's really the point of all the feasts, and we need to remember that because a lot of people are like, "Oh, you're reading Old Testament's all Jewish and all that." No, it's about the Messiah. Yeah, and we follow the, the Messiah. King. Yeah, so he fills fills them all literally. He's the one we're going to meet when the trumpet mm. blows. He's the one who's calling out the nations who rebelled against who persecuted his people and he's calling out purification in his people Israel during atonement and so I mean this is about Jesus that's yeah. what we always have to remember and yeah. and this I, I like you you, you want to read this or you want me to I, I think it'd be better to read this I got this I, would love uh, to. I was okay. doing a lot of research I just do a lot of research I collect <laughs> all these art actually on my um, FileMaker Pro, my database, I actually have a file called Dispensationalism slash Premillennialism. <laughs> <laughs> Just there, I collect articles and sayings and quotes, and some of what we've been saying during this thing comes from that file. And, yeah. and this is a good one. Just help people to hear how tabernacles was anticipated with Jesus and yeah. connected with the Messiah. 
So on the first day of tabernacles, branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees were gathered to make the tents. We find this in Leviticus 23 and Nehemiah 8. At the triumphal entry, some in the crowd cut down branches to spread on the road before Jesus, which we find in Matthew 21. In like manner, saints coming out of the great tribulation to enter the millennium are described as holding palms in their hands. We find that in Revelation 7. When Jesus previewed the kingdom with his transfiguration, Peter offered to erect tabernacles for him, Moses, and Elijah in Matthew 17. The apostle directly associated the Messianic age with the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah, so and we'll in a little bit we're going to explain why, because some of the times Tabernacles is talked about in the prophets, especially Zechariah. And so... Yeah, it's just interesting how tabernacles is being seen. They understood with something with this Messiah. Let's yeah. why are they throwing palm branches down and, and saying blessed is comes in the name of the Lord and yeah. direct on Messiah and they recognize I love that because I never thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I real I really hadn't. Yeah. So everything in the Bible has significance. Yeah. Like we aren't messianic Jews. So yeah. we don't really understand fully I think some of the history of that. I it's so funny you said that cuz uh I was watching the other day Again, this is what I do in my free time, just sit around and watch YouTube videos on these <laughs> things. And I was listening to a Messianic Jew talking about um, tabernacles. And he grew up celebrating tabernacles in an Orthodox Jewish home. And then he became he got a, had an encounter with the Messiah, and it racked him. And so, and then he said, we did all these traditions that I had no clue why we were doing them in tabernacles. Mm. But once he became a believer in Jesus, it all clicked and it all made sense. Mm. And I was just like, oh, actually, I got a little jealous. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> uh, okay. I love Glad that. I'm grafted in, though. Yep. I didn't complain. But there's no future I didn't for grape. them. No, yeah. Not until they accept the Messiah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 So I, I wanted, was kind of being snarky oh. there when people say there's <laughs> yeah. no future, future. Yeah. for Israel. There is. What did John, Listen. We're going to talk about John MacArthur in a little bit, but what did he say? in one of his videos his dad wrote a book said you can't rub the nation you can't rub out or you can't rub mm -hmm. out the jews or something like that is like they're not mm -hmm. going to go away mm -hmm. and as much as people want to and so anyways that's a side note yeah. i want to do go off on, uh, on a second too and talk about something a lot of people don't understand and that's during the feast of tabernacles there was a thing called the water libation ceremony mm -hmm. and you don't find this in scripture but you find it somewhere else yeah i think it's in the talmud talmud yeah is Did I even say that right? Yeah, that's right. Talmud. Okay, it's close. And what is the Talmud? <laughs> Talmud's the tradition that goes back and the, the rabbinic teachings that go all the way back, they say, to the time of Moses, to the law. So this was generally accepted. This is how they celebrated uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and they had this thing called the water libation ceremony. So let me explain this. I'm going to read this, actually, so people understand it better. And, it, and then you're going to find out what Jesus did in John chapter 7 that was just so powerful. It, uh, during the water libation ceremony, the temple priests gathered a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and poured it out on the altar inside the temple. The pouring out of the water was to show that Israel's hope for the future reigns to produce abundant harvest. However, at the time of Jesus, Israel was spiritually destitute. They were living under Roman rule, and even the Holy of Holies did not have the presence of God there any longer. And so that's what uh, this feast was not only crying out for physical rain, but by the time of Jesus, they were crying out for spiritual rain. They wanted God to show up. Mm. It was during the height of this ceremony on the final day of the feast that Jesus chose to stand up and say in a loud voice, and it literally says in the 
in John chapter 7 that on the the great the last day, the great day of the feast, so this is the great day when they did the final pouring out of the water, Jesus stood and said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. I love that. Jesus was telling them the solution to their spiritual drought was him. He was the true living water. It just, it's just great. And, and the response was, it says there in John chapter 7, verse 41, and some declared, Jesus, this is the Messiah. So that's, that's just wow. a great thing. So, I mean, so Jesus recognized this tabernacle when he was this, sorry, tabernacle. He was the tabernacle, right? <laughs> he recognized this feast and how he was the fulfillment of it. Mm. And part of that fulfillment was the water being poured out and he was coming to give living water. Mm. And so, but does that, we what, don't get that. No, but he, it, yeah, right? no, we so don't, beautiful. but he's what fulfilling all the parts of the feasts. Yeah. And so he yeah. fulfilled some of it then, uh, and then he's going to fulfill some later. Mm. So, so anyway, I think it's very obvious to us that the prophetic significance of the seventh feast is to show Christ's millennial reign on earth. Isn't it like, yeah. isn't that the clincher for us? Yeah. Well, well, here is a clincher. Here's the clincher for there's me. There's more? Yes, there's me. Oh. Here's one people that you just kind of skip over and you don't think about it. It says at the end of the feast, uh, there's a, a Sabbath mm. on the eighth day. Mm. Now think about that. That almost sounds like an oxymoron, isn't it? It does, because the Sabbath is the seventh Yeah, but day. there's a day of rest after the feast is over, an eighth day Sabbath. Wow. What? Well, think, if you think about it, Jesus rose again on the eighth day or the first day after the Sabbath. Oh. That's what Sunday is. Eighth means new beginning. That's what number is. It's the new first day of the week. It's the new beginnings. So here you have this feast celebrated for seven days, and then there's an eighth day, a new beginning Sabbath. No work on that last day, and that's it. And then that's the end of the feast. Wow. And and like, what is the prophetic significance of this? It's clear. There's a millennial kingdom coming. There's a reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years. We're going to talk about that. And that is represented in the feast for a week, a a completion time. And then there's an eight-day Sabbath, which is representing the new heavens and the new earth that come down after the millennial kingdom, Revelation 21, and that's eternity. That's how it ends. And, you know, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about heaven. doesn't give us wild descriptions it says, you know what? Um, I what is that? First uh, Corinthians. Well, I has not seen my uh, nor, nor ear has heard, heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Mm-hmm. We don't even know. We, we can't even comprehend how awesome heaven's going to be. Mm-hmm. And this, but it just kind of just it's there. You have two chapters, Revelation twenty one and twenty two, out of all the Bible that talk about the new heaven and new earth, mm-hmm. and yet you have all this about the millennial kingdom. And the, the feast seven days so to me that's the clincher that's where the feast just i get so excited when i saw that it's like <laughs> what a way to end we end with the new heaven and new earth and we end with an eight-day sabbath that comes after the millennial king mm. i just love it wow yeah so i feel like we could stop there yeah but we're not no <laughs> so here's where uh why the the jews were anticipating this uh i, I love this this is this is going to be the last time I'm going to do all the talking. In fact, the next feast, <laughs> we're going to have you uh, jump in here. The so. next feast? The next okay, <laughs> podcast. Well, yeah. part of that is I'm really croaky today. <laughs> so we decided that I probably wouldn't talk yeah. a whole lot. Well, that when I said, man, doesn't we were actually talking about this today. And I'm going over all these passages. Does this make you excited? And you're just like, 
Well, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm yes. excited about this part. Yes. No, I we No, we, I know you're not excited. We laugh about that like I'm the reluctant reluctant prophecy yeah, person. I'm running around. Um, but I do love it. I I love when we see these little glimpses and gems of things that we don't see otherwise. We don't know. That's why we need good teachers. Yeah. That's great. I love I love this. So, here's one why the why those disciples and the people at the triumphal entry were holding palm branches and they were uh and and they were wanting to build tabernacles peter was wanting to build tabernacles because they understood what zechariah 14 says zechariah 14 is a famous passage we don't have time to go over the whole chapter but it's talking about the future kingdom mm. and in it it says that will come about that at any that any who are left of all the nations that went against jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Ooh. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Talking about a future day, it has to be future, because this is about the nations who went up against Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That that didn't happen. That doesn't happen. People, everything was fulfilled in 70 AD. No, there's going to be a time, and it's what the tribulation's about, when the nations are going to come against the, the people of God, mm-hmm. and God is going to defend his people and punish the nations for how they've treated his people. And then he's going to refine his people. Uh, and, re- you know, those who did not reject the Messiah are going to suffer because they rejected Who did the, not reject? Who, those who rejected the Messiah. Okay. Yeah. And then God will vindicate his people. And then that's going to usher in the kingdom. And it talks about that during that time, during the millennial kingdom, that they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Mm. Isn't that wild? That is. I just was reading, a, I actually saw another video about a Jewish organization. that You bring, really were watching a lot of videos, weren't you? Yeah, again. <laughs> you yeah. love that. You're, yeah, you're over there working. and so <laughs> <laughs> You're working too. Yes, yeah, that's it. That's how I relax. <laughs> and But there's an organization that brings Jews, I mean Jews, sorry, Christians from all over the world to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And they were showing all these people in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Even this year, there'll be people coming from all this organization. Bring them, And they're not saying this fulfills it, but it's an anticipation of what's going to happen in Zechariah 14. Mm. Let's celebrate now. And uh, I remember, remember when we lived in the Middle East and we had a, we had a Bible Institute with a lot of the workers who worked uh, from other nations in the Middle East. Remember, we started mm-hmm. Bible Institute. I do remember. Remember when the yes. Filipinos, remember when that group went to Israel? That was like oh, the yeah. greatest highlight of their life. Mm-hmm. I mean, that they got to walk in the holy land. And, you know, we know people who've gone on the tour, but usually when I talk to people, it's uh, theirs was like a sacred moment for them. Yes. And uh, I was like, oh, I wonder if they, I can't remember if they went up during the Feast of Tabernacles. Or not. But anyways, <laughs> but you and I are waiting until that day when Jesus gives us the tour. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. I love that. Okay, well, so Paula, the great question that comes out of this is what? What's gonna what's the great question about the Feast of Tabernacles? Okay, you're getting ready to cough, so I'll say it. Will Christ <laughs> reign on this it. earth from Jerusalem? Yeah. Will Christ reign on this earth from the city of David, from Zion, from Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. Is that day going to happen or is it all just spiritualized and we're just gonna go to heaven in the end? Well, one of the persons I want to recommend, uh, if you want to watch some YouTube videos on it, is John MacArthur. 
Now, whatever you want to think about John MacArthur, he gives some really, really good balanced answers when he's asked about, are you a dispensationalist and are you premillennialist? And the reason he gets asked this question a lot is because he's a reformed theologian. And so uh, when you go into soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, he leans more toward the Calvinist camp in his teaching. But most of the reformed people are amillennialists. And they're definitely anti-dispensationalists. And so they're always confused. And he says he's a leaky dispensationalist, or uh, they'll say he's good in his reform <laughs> theology, but he's uh, confused in his eschatology <laughs> his last day. But actually, his answers are spot on, and it's exactly what we would say if we were asked these kind of questions. Yeah, so, and I love how he sums it up best in one of his videos. He says, why do we read in the Old Testament the blessings and the cursings to Israel? We read literally the curses to Israel and see their literal fulfillment to Israel and their destruction and exile. But when we read the future restoration and blessing, we spiritualize them and say that they are for the church and not for Israel. Yeah. So in other words, the curses apply to Israel, the blessings apply to the church. Yeah. And you're just saying that's just inconsistent. Look, show me in the Old Testament where Israel is the church or show me in the New Testament where Israel is the church. And it's not. It's confusing. There's one passage, Galatians 6, 9, and people will use that where it talks about the Israel of God. And people say, well, that's a church. And it's like, well, no, he's just been writing for six chapters, making this distinction mm. against Jews and Gentiles and showing that. But he's showing that there's still the Israel of God. And so mm. anyways, you can read all the articles. Everybody uses that as their ammunition. Well, if you got to go to one verse to make your doctrinal point, when we can go to about... Uh, hundreds and hundreds of verses to make our point well. Yeah. We win yeah. scoreboard. That, that's just good hermeneutics, isn't, yeah. isn't it? Like you don't yeah. take one verse yeah. and build a whole doctrine. And if you it. listen to our talk on dispensationalism, what is the one of the cynical nons? It's a literal interpretation, mm -hmm. to do literal interpretation. Don't spiritualize if you don't need to. Mm -hmm. And this would be the case. So um, let me just... I want to tell a little story. I, MacArthur tells a story, and I listen to it, and I've listened to it a couple of times now because I just found it a very good summary of what of how this plays out. And uh, he he was on a he was on a trip to Jerusalem. You know, they were going to go to some conference that they were host, hosting in Jerusalem. This is back in the day. David Ben Gurion was there, like one of the founders and leaders of the nation of Israel, and uh, the, some people from the Knesset. You know, they're, they're people who don't know the Knesset is their like Congress Parliament. Parliament. Yes, yeah. Parliament Congress, and uh, the mayor of Jerusalem was there at this conference, and uh, and he went with Charles Feinberg. Now, if you don't know who Charles Feinberg is, I'd encourage you to Google I it. don't know who Charles okay. Feinberg is. Charles Feinberg, he, he, okay, so he's a Messianic Jew. He grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home, and there was a black woman in his neighborhood who basically put him on her uh, prayer list and just started targeting him and telling him about Jesus. And, you know, he didn't listen much, but she just kept insisting. Finally, she connected him with a Messianic Jew who explained who Jesus, who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, and Charles gave his life to, to the Lord. Brilliant man, brilliant. I, I he got—I forget where he went for his undergraduate, but he got like his two masters and a doctorate in like four-year period. He was just a brilliant man. His he, two of his sons are the ones who influenced me. Uh, no, I want to give tribute to Charles. <laughs> you go over there and call from the corner. I'm going to talk here for a second. 
See, I made you laugh. Now you're going to cough. Now I can talk longer. Two of his sons, John Feinberg and uh, Paul Feinberg, are the ones who, there are a lot of their books I used in seminary, and they're scholars upon scholars. Taught One got his PhD from Dallas. They taught at Trinity for years and uh, Talbot. And so uh, this is just a brilliant family. Well, Charles Feinberg was with John MacArthur there at the conference. Now think about it. He's a Messianic Jew in Jerusalem. They're talking about prophecy. And before them, an amillennialist got up to speak. And he was given his lecture, and basically he made the announcement to the Jewish dignitaries. And everybody there, there, I guess MacArthur said there were like 3,000 people there. And he said that was teaching them that the Old Testament promises were now being fulfilled in the church. And that they basically needed to convert. Which, not bad. I don't know. No, actually, he didn't say they needed to convert. That was my wrong. And uh, he didn't, I don't think he said it in the video. But this guy was just preaching that the promises were fulfilled in the church. MacArthur said, to, to put it mildly, Feinberg was upset. And so when it was Feinberg's time to come up and speak, this was his opening line. So we've come all the way from the U.S. to tell you that all the curses belong to you, but, to, but the blessings belong to the Gentile church. Then he launched into a message about the promises of God. I just like how he summed that up, you know, you know, you get all the curses, you mm. get all the curses, Israel, but we, the Gentiles, we get all the blessings now. Mm. That just doesn't sound like God. God, 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 if he kept his promise and he did, he destroyed Jerusalem. He did. They punished him. Mm. They got the curses of Deuteronomy. And, but in Deuteronomy, there's a future restoration promises. Yeah. In the province, there's future. I mean, how can you not read Isaiah and see the future promises? And yet, and yet, we want to spiritualize those mm. inconsistent hermeneutics. I like that's why MacArthur kind of goes off on the amillennials because, again, they're all friends. You know, he's not like they're heretics. And stuff. But he goes, you know, have you ever thought about this? There are only two real major groups that have A in front of their descriptions. A millennialist, a millennialist, and a theist, atheist, atheist. A means non or no. So an atheist is a no theist, a no God. An amillennialist is a no millennium. And he said, Have you ever been to an amillennialist prophecy conference? <laughs> Everyone laughs because no, there's there's no such thing. Because they don't have a doctrine of eschatology. They don't have a doctrine of the last times. The reformers were you know, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all these great reformers, Edwards and all those guys, they were fighting over the doctrine of justification. They were trying to restore salvation to the church that had been lost mm. and made it a works-based salvation. Mm. They never got around to really writing books and arguments about eschatology. Huh. So, anyway, that's a little side note. Oh, that's great. But it's important because you're going to yes. I just met a guy the other day. He kind of went off on me. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't believe there's a future and millennial kingdom on this earth and Anomalous, and I said, "Okay, praise God." And uh, but, uh, anyways, I go off on tangents. <laughs> that what you said? Just praise God. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Paula. So let's just do this. Okay, let's just end this way. Okay, let's read. I have here my. I have my old Bible. This thing is literally oh, falling goodness, apart. Yeah, look is. at this. I could sit here and just start reading Isaiah two two through four, Isaiah four two through six, Isaiah eleven one through ten, Jeremiah three seventeen, Ezekiel thirty four twenty five through thirty one. I'm just randomly picking them. Hosea one ten and eleven, Micah four one through four. All these passages I just have listed in the back of my Bible because I went one day and I read through all the prophets and I marked every time I saw something that said 
this is a promise that will be fulfilled on earth. This is a promise to be, and we're going to read some of these now. And I just wrote next to them in my Bible, premillennialism, premillennialism. So why do I believe it? Because it's some doctrine. I don't, I'm not promoting a doctrine. I'm just promoting the promises of God. And let's just read some of those. And then readers, you decide for yourself. If you think the feast is going to be fulfilled literally by Christ reigning on earth for a thousand years, and then it's going to be delivered over into the eighth day Sabbath, the new heaven and new earth, well, great. And if you don't believe it, we love you. <laughs> don't agree with you, but we love you. Yes. And so, but these are just some of the many, many verses that we read of God's promises. You want to read some of them? We'll go back and I forth do. if you want. Isaiah 24, 23. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So he will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. No, is that true or not? Okay, I think it is. I think it is too. Yep. You want to do the next one? Isaiah 49. I'll be reading from 14 to 16. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You know, as it said, but Zion said, it doesn't say, but the church in London said, <laughs> but, you know, but the church in Beijing said, no, Zion said, and he said, I will not forget you. In Isaiah forty four twenty one, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. So are we saying we're Zionists now who are supporting the oppression of Palestinians and that? And I get that mm. all the time because I travel the world and I work a lot in the Middle East. I'm like, bro, mm. calm down. Nothing's going to happen until the Feast of Trumpets blows. So whatever Israel does right now, it's setting the stage. Some of their doing is evil, but even God can turn evil into good. But we're not going. We're going to oppose it when there's oppression, when there's injustice, there's unrighteousness, when there's oppression of the poor and stuff, and there's oppression on both sides. I mean, we, we know, well, there's people groups out there who in their charter statement says we want to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's not justice either. We always have to be of justice and not freak yeah. out because nothing's going to happen on the prophetic clock until the rapture comes. Mm -hmm. At least if you believe in the seven feasts. <laughs> and if not, go back and listen to our podcast <laughs> yeah, that's on that. Right. Now let's have some our fun. Our 25 podcasts yeah. on that. <laughs> Here's what makes me sad is that so many Christians on the first, either every week, or on the first week, first Sunday of the month, they take communion. Mm -hmm. That upsets you? It upsets me that they, they <laughs> don't fully, a lot of them don't fully understand this thing of what Jesus was doing. Jesus says, this is the cup of my covenant, the blood of my covenant. And then he says, and in, in, in Luke actually has, says the new covenant. And 1 Corinthians 3, Hebrews 8, they talk about this new covenant, the new covenant. Jesus instituted a new covenant. What is a new covenant? Where did Jesus get this idea from? The new covenant is actually found in the prophets. And Jesus was not coming up with this new idea. He was coming to fulfill what was promised about him. So let's walk through this. Okay. Uh, you want to start reading and I might cut you off? Yeah. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Yeah. So right there, just think about it. So I always like to remind people, you know, Jesus took communion with his disciples who were all Jews. <laughs> and and he says he's going to drink it new with them. 
You won't drink. He's not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until when? Until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Yeah. Always, always. That part is so important. Mm. We're waiting for the kingdom. So every time I get ready to drink the cup, you don't even probably know this. Every time I go, Lord, I'm waiting for that kingdom. Mm. I'm taking this in anticipation of oh, that I love day. That. That's why I'm such a strong premillennialist because I believe in the kingdom on earth when he were going to take communion together on this earth. Yeah. And it goes on. It says, not like a covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to the land to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Mm. You can just see that the nature of this is what we talked about before. Were the Gentiles grafted into the promises that Israel's been broken off, but one day they're going to be brought back in, and we're all going to become one people and mm. the kingdom of God, and we'll be there because we're going to come back with the Lord. Ah, oh, just it's exciting. Mm, it is. Yeah. Actually, we're almost done. We could go on. If you want to read Ezekiel 36, <laughs> that also talks about the new covenant. And, and, and there he's talking about he's going to put a spirit within him. And then he says, you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God, Ezekiel 36, 28. So even in this, just like Abraham, he promised the land to Abraham, and he's going to fulfill it. And it's part of the new covenant. Yeah. It's, oh, I just get so excited. <laughs> How about we, we we always talk about Handel's Messiah. You want to sing it for it? No, you're coughing. And stuff, but, <laughs> but why don't you read Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, and let's hear it again and uh, think of Handel's Messiah. For you unto, no, I'm not doing it. Okay. <laughs> for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Again, every amillennialist says this is about him reigning in our hearts. This is about Christ reigning spiritually from heaven. Well, He's going to sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And David never ruled over people's hearts. David never ruled from heaven. David was on the earth ruling over a kingdom. And we always like to say a kingdom has three things. It has a king, it has subjects, and it has a sphere or something. You're ruling over a territory and a people. And that's what's going to happen during the millennial kingdom. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. So I know you want, oh, we can, okay, I'm not going to read anymore, but I'm going to end with this. Because I just told you about this today, and I found these in my files, and I just wanted to end with this. You're going to hear a lot of people say, oh, this is all new. This is a new theology. You know, this, if you, for anybody who's been around, this is Schofield Bible and John Nelson Darby. This all started with the Plymouth Brethren in the 18th century. And you'll meet people who will say that if they're going to try and talk you out of believing this. And again, if you don't believe this, you're going to heaven. This is, an, this is a secondary doctrine. But again, what we're trying to say, you show you is the joy and the excitement we have of anticipation of what Christ's going to do in fulfilling his promises. And as Paul said in Romans 6, it's not as those God's promises aren't true, are they? Meganoita. Yeah, exactly. He's going to fulfill them. Never I be. paraphrase that pretty bad. But anyways, <laughs> let me read three people for you. One of them wrote, but I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem. 
which will be built, adorned, and enlarged as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. That sounds like a pretty much a somebody who believed in the Feast of Tabernacles being fulfilled literally on earth, doesn't it? Yes. Okay. Another one. Amongst these, he will say there will be a millennium after the resurrection from the dead when the personal reign of Christ will be established. Hmm. That sounds like a physical reign, doesn't it? It does. Well, let's keep going. John, the Apostle John, therefore, did distinctly foresee the first resurrection of the just and the inheritance of the kingdom of the earth and what the prophets have prophesied concerning it, it harmonized with his vision. For the Lord also taught these things when he prox- promised, it's kind of old English here, that he would have the mixed cup new with his disciples in the kingdom. Kind of what we just said, Jesus is going to take the cup of the vine again in his kingdom with his followers. And then the last one says, but we do confess that a kingdom is promised to us upon the earth, although before heaven, only in another state of existence, inasmuch it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built city of Jerusalem. You know, I read those. One was my ultimate hero, Justin Martyr, (laughs) wrote in the second century. Papias wrote in the second century. Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, was one. And then my, the greatest theologian, in my opinion, some say Augustine in the early church, Tertullian, the great lawyer scholar from Carthage, was one of those. The early church believed in a millennial reign of Christ. The feast will be fulfilled literally. And we get to participate and see Christ come back. So, to sum it all up, and I just want you to understand that Christ is going to come back for his saints at the rapture, but then we're going to come back with him to reign on earth for a thousand years. Thanks for listening to the Radical Christian Life with Doug and Paula. I think it's at this time we're supposed to do some pitch like hit the subscribe button or donate, but we just want to say, do what you want. We trust way more in the sovereignty of God than in the Christian industrial marketing complex. You just keep living radical for Jesus, and so will we. And let's watch how he blesses us all. We'll see you next time.